You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The True Identity of the Devil Revealed This interview podcast explains that the belief of the devil has the origin outside of the Bible. In fact, the true origins of the devil are Zoroastrianism. This came about in Persia about 300 to 100 years before the Lord Jesus Christ walked the earth. What we need to do is examine what the scripture, what the Bible actually says the devil is and what that means for us. Hope you enjoy this four part series. Please let us know what you think. Thank you for watching the Christadelphians present the true identity of the devil. My name is Peter Wisniewski, and on behalf of the Christadelphian Church, I welcome you to our program, which explores biblical themes and doctrines with an often unconventional yet honest and logical approach to the study of God's holy scripture. So please, bear an open mind and an open Bible as we attempt to prayerfully and sincerely study the Bible together. We ask that, at least for now, suspend any preconceived ideas traditional customs and man-made philosophy. Prepare to be enlightened. And for some of you, get ready to be a little bit shocked. For the people at home, please also have a pen and paper handy and try to write down some of these key Bible verses we will be exploring together. Two of the most profound themes in all scripture are that the Lord God of heaven and earth is in total control of his universe and with his unlimited power has no rival. And the other unfortunate message of Scripture is that mankind is of a corruptible nature, which without God will remain in his mortality until the day of his death and cease to exist. We have with us in our studio today Mr. Norman Smith, a friend and brother in our church who at one time in his previous religious affiliations believed in a personal, supernatural, evil being who goes around tempting mankind. However, Norman is here today to explain why he has come to the opposite conclusion. Welcome, Norm. Thank you, Peter. Norm, we said at the outset that uh, the audience at home, the Bible reading public, will be uh, somewhat shocked over this uh, discussion that uh, you used to be convinced in the existence of a, a personal devil. What caused you to change your view? What was it that provoked you in your own mind to come to a different conclusion? 
Well, actually, Peter, it started with just a few passages that were pointed out to me. And after examining those few passages, I could not reconcile the passages that were shown to me with the belief that there was indeed this supernatural evil being that is tempting mankind to sin. And so looking at these passages initially, you know, I could not see it. I could not reconcile that. And so what happened then was the beginning of an investigation mm -hmm. of the subject uh, on a complete biblical basis. Now, could we look at some of these uh, specific verses that made you rethink your former position? Yes, Peter, uh, let's do that. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, I'm sure you know, you're aware of that mm -hmm. and all of our viewers will no doubt be aware of the Lord's Prayer contained in Matthew chapter 6. So let's just read that and see if we can you know, pick Very out good. a point there that um, a point at least which caused me serious concern. Okay. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, we read this. And this, of course, is Jesus um, teaching us how to pray. It says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Peter, when I read this passage, there's a statement here that struck me as very, very difficult to harmonize with a belief that I had. And that is where Jesus prays or he asks us to pray for the day when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So here we see a very stark contrast between heaven and earth. Now, simply put, if we could go to now um, John chapter um, 1 verse 29, we will see here the actual condition of the earth. And here we read in John chapter 1, verse 29, uh, uh, where Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. And John the Baptist makes this statement, you know, about Jesus. He says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so here you have a situation which, in a nutshell, describes the problems that are in the world in one word, and that is sin. And so when the sin of the world is taken away, as John describes here, then what we would have would be perfect harmony, perfect peace. There would be no problems, no wars, nothing uh, catastrophic whatsoever. And so when we looked at Jesus in the Lord's Prayer and what he said, when this takes place, then it will be exactly like heaven. So here you have now a seeming contradiction. If there are all of these wicked, evil spirits, fallen angels who lived in heaven and have sinned and have rebelled against God,
then you have a clear contradiction because of the contrast that Jesus is making in the Lord's Prayer. Very good. Uh, we can uh, see after even just a, uh, a surface reading of Scripture that uh, it, it often presents a great deal of uh, opposites, a great deal of contrast. Can you uh, cite any other uh, verses that, that reveal this great contrast? Actually, Peter, um, w another passage that really, really struck my attention was Jesus' words in Luke, Luke chapter 20, and in particular, verses 34 to 36. And this is the occasion where Jesus is refuting the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. Right. And, and here we read, Peter, uh, and Jesus answering said unto them, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God being children of the resurrection. And so, Jesus here is making a statement that those who are accounted worthy to obtain the world to come and the resurrection from the dead are made equal unto the angels. Now, there's also another portion in Scripture which tells us exactly what state those will be in who are worthy and obtain the resurrection from the dead. And as you and I'm sure our viewers are aware, that's contained in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, if we could go to 1 Corinthians okay. chapter 15 and, and read um, Paul's words there, and in particular, verses 53 to 56. Peter, would you be kind enough to read that for us? Certainly, Norm. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The, the point here is, Peter, that the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, makes it very clear that at the resurrection, those who are found worthy will gain two things, and that is immortality and incorruptibility. An immortal being cannot die. An incorruptible mm -hmm. being cannot be corrupt in any way, shape, or form. And so something that's unbreakable, for example, it, it's unbreakable. Mm -hmm. You can't break it. And so here we have the statement in 1 Corinthians 15 that those who are raised are given immortality and incorruptibility. Now Jesus, as we looked at earlier, stated that this is the state that we receive and we become equal unto the angels. Therefore, we have to conclude that the angels themselves are immortal and incorruptible. Thus, you have a situation where it's impossible that angels can sin or die. That would obviously lead uh, one to the conclusion that uh, what would be the point of God's elevating us as a reward of eternal life 
to, to a place where we're only susceptible to fall from grace again. It, it makes the, the whole point of uh, reward uh, quite useless. That's right, Peter. That's one of the things that I thought of. It's one of the things that yeah. plagued me as I tried to sort through this situation in my own mind because all Christians long for the day when mm -hmm. Jesus will return and grant them immortality and incorruptibility. Now, if the possibility exists that they will sin again, then it, it's almost, you know, something that where there's no guarantee that we will gain this and then sometime in the future fall. Now, I would just like to take a look at uh, some of the Old Testament scriptures as we've been going through the New Testament. Is there anything uh, amongst the Hebrew prophets that have written something down for us in the Old Testament? How would the Hebrews of old uh, look upon this subject of uh, this source of sin? Well, Peter, that, that's a good question. If we can demonstrate that angels cannot sin and, and cannot die and thus uh, demonstrate that there is no supernatural evil influence, you know, influencing mankind to sin, then that only leaves one area, and that is within the human realm itself. And I think if we were to turn to Jeremiah chapter 1, we would, we would find this uh, precise um, teaching in Jeremiah. So let's just turn to Jeremiah chapter okay. 1. And uh, Peter, go ahead and read verse 1. Jeremiah 17 and 1 says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with a point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. So we see here, Peter, that Judah had sinned. And the heart is pointed out as being the primary instigator as to the reason why they had sinned. You know, the heart is contained within the human body. Now, those who do believe in a, in a supernatural devil, Peter, could say, well, he has somehow influenced Israel to sin, just like today, you know, people who believe in a devil say that he has somehow influenced us to sin by providing things in the world that tempt us to sin. But Peter, if we were to read on and look at verses 9 and 10, we see something far more sinister than a fallen angel. Let's assume that a fallen angel does exist for the moment. In verses 9 and 10 of Jeremiah chapter 17, we see something far more sinister. And let's just read those verses. Okay. In Jeremiah 17 and verses 9 and 10, we read this. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruits of his doings. And so there, Peter, the scripture says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. When we read the account in Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet ascribes the 
sin of Israel as provoked so that uh, we've been on a, uh, a downhill slide ever since the, the first incident of giving in to these lusts. And today, man uh, has uh, been obviously fighting a losing battle. Uh, fortunately, thank God that uh, Christ has won that victory. But it says here uh, in 1 John 2 that uh, mentioning the wicked one and him overcoming the wicked one, could you help identify who this wicked one is. Well, Peter, that's uh, a passage that uh, many would say, well, there you go. This proves that uh, the wicked one that we overcome is some person, some evil influence that um, is the devil. And, of course, that's, that's what I used to believe. But I think we can identify the wicked one very simply. And when we do so, I think it harmonizes with what we've just read in that the wicked one is actually in the world and not a supernatural influence. Let's just turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6, and verse 6, for example. And Peter, okay. could, would you be kind enough to read that? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So here we have, Peter, um, the association with the old man being crucified and so we should not serve sin. Here sin is personified as the old man mm -hmm. and so the wicked one is the old man and that's the, the Bible's way of speaking. You know we have two ways of thinking. We have the new man or the old man and of course God wants us to think like the new man that is renewed after we learn the truth about God and the old man that we fight with all the time, we want to get rid of him. And so the wicked one in 1 John is a personification of sin, which is a result of temptation. Now, Scripture often talks about uh, a new creation, uh, things that are in the past that are related to our former way of life. It is obviously a, an about face, even when uh, people are uh, brought uh, to Christ. It speaks of a rebirth. The term uh, born again is quite often used. And, and you think of that in a literal sense as a newborn baby, uh, a fresh start, a second chance. God wants us to put away that old man. And uh, it's interesting to, to see how that terminology is used. Where else in Scripture do we see that term old man? Well, Peter, I think uh, a passage that is very clear is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 27. And uh, let's just read that. 
Here, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, uh, makes this statement. He says that ye put off concerning the former conversation, or personality, as the word conversation means, the old man, which is corrupt. There you have First John, the wicked one. The old man here, Paul says, is corrupt or wicked. And so, according to the deceitful lusts, there you have the word lusts, which we found in First John, the lust of the flesh. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which is after God, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be ye angry and not sin, and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. So here we have this uh, Bible teaching that the old man is a personification of sin or the flesh that tempts us to sin. Okay, now why does it say, you know, neither give place to the devil? Can you explain that? Well, Peter, in uh, very simply put, the word devil simply means slanderer, uh, liar, uh, something with a malicious intent. Now, the passage does not say that the devil is a fallen angel there. It just simply mentions the word devil. To, to use the word devil and say that's a fallen angel is just an assumption. Jesus called Judas a devil. He says, one of you is a devil. And all he meant by that is one of you is a slanderer or one of you is malicious. And so the word devil here, I would equate with the flesh because it's in harmony with what is just being spoken of here. Putting off the old man is the devil or the slanderer. Now, there's uh, a quite a few uh, instances of the word devil. And, and just looking at those words, uh, if anybody at home has a, uh, access to a, uh, what we would call a biblical concordance, we can look up some of these words for ourselves. And as Norm has defined Satan and devil, uh, they really do not have any supernatural connotations to them. As a matter of fact, uh, you go to uh, the Hebrew Scriptures and you find out that uh, the most uh, devout of Hebrews would consider uh, a belief in a fallen angel devil as, as I've heard it quoted to be wild blasphemy. As a matter of fact, uh, it wasn't mentioned, but though the, the word devil is quite often uh, used in the, New Testament, in the New Testament, it is never once used in the uh, singular form in the Old Testament. So this concept is, has not always been around associated with the Bible, and as we're discussing uh, today, it should never have, uh, I guess, infiltrated into the, the scriptures uh, that we're discussing. Is there a, a, a verse somewhere in the New Testament that really gives a, a, a real sense of this term, the devil? And equating it with human nature or yes. the flesh? Yes. Let, let, let's see if we can put a few verses side by side and, and really get to the, the crux of the matters uh, we conclude the subject. Well, Peter, I think there are two passages that we can put side by side and see 
that they're an actual parallel of each other. And as we know, the Bible does that quite often. It uses uh, a way of explaining something, and elsewhere it'll, it explains the same thing, but just in a little different way. And so if we could compare Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, with, Romans, or with Hebrews chapter yes. 9, verse 26, I think we will clearly see the, uh, the parallelism here. And in Hebrews 2.14, we'll read first. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself also likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him that has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, let's read Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26 and see if we can pick out some similarities. For then must he often suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put sin away by the sacrifice of himself. So here we see virtually identical statements made. Um, through death, in Hebrews 2.14, by the sacrifice of himself, in Hebrews 9.26. And in both cases, the process of death eliminates that which causes death. For example, we know that the wages of sin is death. Now in Hebrews 2.14, it says that he became partakers of flesh and blood, that's the flesh, in order to put away that which causes death, which is the devil. So we have this parallelism where the devil is associated with sin. And so Jesus, being flesh and blood, tempted in all points as we are, literally when he died, the flesh that he had died with him. Mm -hmm. And as a result of his never sinning, God raised him from the dead to get immortality. Now, if one were to have had these concepts of a, of a supernatural evil being uh, lurking uh, around, uh, always seeking to tempt mankind, then they could in no way uh, misconstrue this uh, verse from Hebrews 2 and 14 that says that Jesus himself, by partaking of the same nature and through dying, that he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So if there ever was a fallen angel, he no longer exists because Jesus destroyed him. Well, more accurately, Peter, the devil no longer exists in Jesus okay. because Jesus had human nature. Jesus was tempted. And so when Jesus died and was raised to immortality, he could no longer die. He could no longer be tempted again. And as, you, as we remember in our previous program, we looked at uh, Luke chapter 20, that in the resurrection we become equal to the angels in nature. We can no longer sin nor die because we're immortal and incorruptible. Now, the, de the devil is still very much alive in the rest of mankind because we have not been made immortal yet, and we are still struggling with the flesh and temptation. And that uh, reminds me of that uh, verse out of uh, uh, Mark uh, chapter 7 that we can only cite here, that Jesus said 
that when they were complaining about him eating with unwashed hands, he said, it was never anything anyways that would come into us that could defile us. But what comes out of the heart is what defiles us. And he gives this long list of all the, the sins inherent in all of us, which he totally overcame, which mankind still struggles with, and we recognize that we do have a man that could help us all. So we'd like to uh, welcome our friends at home. Though we could not go through all the verses in detail, please don't hesitate to call us. May God bless your study of his word. frame. There is no supernatural external influence mentioned at all. In fact, it's the opposite. It's the human heart, and he even goes to such an extent to say that above all things, the heart is deceitful. And so there's no room for a supernatural influence here. Well, I'm sure even our audience at home can uh, identify with these uh, same impulses of the heart that here we see in, in Scripture itself that proclaims uh, and, and pinpoints the, the very source of, of the problems of Israel of old that when we take it in context in, in Jeremiah 17 and 9, it is simply a, a warning and a condemnation for their idolatry, which, again, taking in context, they were on the verge of their doom as it was spelled out by Jeremiah, and they must have had to, beyond the shadow of a doubt, accept their own punishment as the consequences of their sinfulness. Now, if uh, one were to be quite honest with themselves, they know that the, the source of their own sin is something that, that comes from within, from the, from the very heart of man, and, and we have no one else to blame. Uh, this is becoming very interesting. Norma, do you have any other uh, scriptures to support this uh, further uh, thought? Yes, Peter, I believe it's a theme that's contained right from the very beginning of Scripture, and that is that man has no one to blame 
but himself for the things that he has done wrong. And so, Peter, let's go right back to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and look at Genesis chapter 4 and verses 5 to 7. And, and here we read, uh, this is God speaking to Cain. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, or as the word means, very angry. And his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why has thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Mm -hmm. Now, here's a perfect example, Peter, of a situation where, where God is actually trying to get Cain to reverse his attitude. He's saying to Cain, if you do well, you will be accepted. But if you don't do well, there's a consequence. Mm. And he pinpoints what it was that would cause him not to do well. And in the scripture, it's actually, if you'll note, it says, sin lieth at the door. Yes. And here sin is personified as a, uh, an animal that's ready to crouch on its prey. And, and any modern translation will actually render it that way. And so here we have a situation right from the beginning where God pinpoints the actual uh, reason why Cain could not do what was right. He was so angry, yes. filled with anger, he could not overcome his own human emotions. And thus, in the end, what did he do? He killed his brother. Yes, and uh, as our Bible students at home realize that this was the first example of murder in Scripture that resulted in one unable to control his heart, the, the raging monster of wrath, as it were, within. And it was a, an animal that Cain didn't, but that we all realize that we need to tame, as it were. I'm sure Genesis, uh, the foundation of all scripture, has a, a few more examples of the very heart of man. Exactly, Peter. And we see that once again as we follow through in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6. Now let's turn to Genesis chapter okay. 6, and in particular, <clears throat> verses 5 to 7. Peter, maybe you could read those for us. Certainly. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repented me that I have made them. You notice, Peter, in, in this statement, there are a couple of key items that we, we take to note. And that is the fact that God saw that the wickedness of man was great. And he names the root cause. And that is that his heart is evil from his youth up. Um, something else to, to remember here, Peter, is that um, if there is a supernatural influence 
uh, controlling mankind and causing them to sin, then we have once again kind of like a contradiction mm -hmm. that this verse plagued me just like the verses we looked at earlier. And the statement here, God says, it repented the Lord that he had made man or he regretted that he had made man. Now, if indeed man is sinning because of all of this supernatural evil influence outside causing him to sin, then it's ironic that God would make the statement, I repented that I have mm. made man. Good it point. should have been the opposite. We never see anywhere in the scripture where God says, I do regret that I have made the angels, which really is the problem if we look at it from the orthodox right. way of thinking. Exactly. Uh, we can certainly see that uh, inside man's thinking is very hard. Um, but what, how was man any different uh, than he is uh, today? What, what was it uh, that uh, so invoked God's wrath to destroy the entire earth? Well, Peter, let's read the next uh, passage. And then we'll answer that question after we read the next passage. Okay. And then the next passage is, is just a few verses later in verses uh, 11 and 13 of Genesis chapter 6. Okay. And here we read, The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So, in answer to your question, Peter, the earth was uh, in a situation where it was filled with violence, it was filled with wickedness. We see the word corrupt uh, come up here a number of times. But the point again, Peter, if we look at uh, the, one of the final statements in this passage here, it identifies the true reason why the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. It specifically says that in the latter portion there, the violence was a result, it makes a statement, the earth is filled with violence through them. Now, who do you think them is in this passage? That's obviously mankind. That's right. So once again, indicating that the, that the source of the wickedness and the source of the corruption was man himself and not any supernatural influence outside the human realm. Now, did this uh, great cataclysm of events, uh, such as been proven many times over through archaeology and scripture, bearing out uh, that scripture is indeed a fact, did this uh, great flood actually destroy evil once and for all? No, Peter. Um, we read in, in Genesis chapter 8, if we could just look at Genesis chapter 8 and read verse 21. Um, Peter, would you read that for us? Certainly. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. Right. So this is a statement that's made 
after the flood. And we only have Noah and his family remaining. But God still makes the statement that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So no, the, the destruction of the human family at the flood did not change anything. Man's heart is still evil from his youth up. Now, again, uh, the, the Bible is one harmonious book. Is there anything uh, of a comment of the days of Noah and the flood and the destruction of the earth that's uh, mentioned in the New Testament? Yes, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, he says that as it was in the days of Noah, it will be the same at the coming of the Son of Man. And just look at our earth today. Yeah. And we can see the violence that's in the earth. And I think even in our day, I've experienced it, and I'm sure you've experienced it. People who never thought about religious matters, say, 20 years ago, are all of a sudden now thinking about the condition of the earth and how it relates to religious matters. In fact, CNN, you know, they've documented... Um, you know, is this Armageddon as foretold in the Bible? And, and they've done this simply because they see the earth in such a condition that they've never seen it before. And uh, I think with that interesting point, uh, we're going to have to uh, leave it off there. Uh, we've got a lot more uh, detailed Bible uh, verses that we would like to look at in our part two. And please... Look forward to the sequel as we present to you the true identity of the devil. Thank you very much for watching. If you have any questions, you'll see the number listed at the bottom of your screen. Thank you.
Hello again and welcome to the Christadelphians present The True Identity of the Devil, Part 2. For those of you who have been with us in our previous program, we thank you for joining in the sequel as we continue to investigate the real biblical teaching about who the devil really is. My name is Peter Wisnowski and as your host of this half-hour presentation, we welcome back our friend and brother Norman Smith to continue our discussion on this fascinating subject. For those of you who have missed Part 1, which was aired previously, we discussed with our guests the reasons why he no longer believes in a supernatural fallen angel devil. We considered several key Bible passages referring to the human heart as being the source of sin and looked at scriptures which contradict the view that anything evil could ever reside with God. It was made quite clear that immortality is exclusively bestowed upon the righteous. We're going to continue with passages that make us take a second look at traditional views and reinvestigate our understanding of the Bible so that our viewers may see that there is a legitimate alternative to teachings other than what is commonly taught in the churches today. So please, grab pen and paper to take note of the various Bible verses we will be studying today. We admit we don't have a lot of time to get to every verse of the Bible dealing with this subject, so please bear with us and call us at the number that will be shown on your screen as well as the email address which we hope you will avail yourselves of. Welcome once again. Norm. Thank you, Peter. Norm, we're just going to pick up uh, where we left off. We saw a lot of uh, verses uh, that, uh, from both the Old and the New Testament that commented on this very vital subject matter of the devil. Could you just uh, begin where we uh, had stopped at uh, part two, uh, part one? Well, Peter, I think in the, in the first program, we just laid a foundation as to the true identity of, of Satan, the devil, simply being human nature or, you know, the human way of thinking. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get to any passages that actually contained the word devil and Satan. This time we will. Um, and so let's look at some passages to kind of follow on along the, the path that we, you know, were leading up to in our first program. The first passage that I would like to present is found in Matthew chapter 16. And if we could turn to Matthew chapter 16 and read in particular verses 21 to 23, I think we'll see here that even where the word Satan is used, we can see that it's not a fallen angel. Mm -hmm. And so, Peter, let's, let's just read these, these verses and see if we can draw some conclusions. Um, in Matthew 16, 21 to 23, we read, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest, or as the word savorest means, thou think not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now, in our first program, you asked me what passages that really caused me to rethink 
um, my position on my belief. And this is one of them. Here we have a situation where Jesus calls the Apostle Peter Satan. And I'm sure that no one would think that Peter, the Apostle, is a fallen angel. Now, it's important for us at this time to identify what the word Satan actually means. It simply means adversary or opponent. In fact, in many places in the Bible, the original word is translated adversary. And so here we have a situation where um, Jesus is simply calling Peter an adversary. Now, those who do believe in, in a personal devil would say, well, Satan is using Peter to tempt Jesus into not going to Jerusalem and dying. But I think if we read the, the final statement by Jesus, I think we can see that what Jesus is saying is actually harmonizing with what we stated in our first program. And that is the statement where he says to Peter, he says, you think or you savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now, if Jesus had in mind a supernatural influence, influencing Peter, he certainly would have said, now Peter, you're not thinking like God. You're thinking like this fallen angel in heaven who used to be with God but has rebelled. And so once again, we see the true, uh, the true nature of, of Peter's ignorance. And that was, he was thinking like carnal men. It's uh, also ironic that uh, previously in this chapter, if uh, some of the viewers at home would uh, care to uh, look at this in any detail, Jesus had just prior to this declared Peter to be blessed for knowing and for proclaiming that Jesus himself was the Christ. So that there's a, a very uh, instantaneous uh, change from a proper way of thinking to an improper way of thinking, which this verse would speak to that that Peter, with uh, mistaken uh, motivation, had so declared what things he didn't wish to happen to Christ, with his heart in the right place, but even out of uh, sincere intentions, can actually sin against the purpose of God. Now, it was, a, as you said, a carnal way of thinking. Um, that's a word that we don't often use. But uh, the scriptures use it to, to good effect. What does it mean and, and where else can we find this word used in scripture? Well, actually, Peter, that's a good point, what you just mentioned. We can be spiritual one minute in our thinking and at the snap of a finger, we can be on the wrong track. And that's exactly the case with Peter as demonstrated in that 16th chapter of Matthew. Now, I think an excellent uh, place to go for us now is the book of Romans, and in particular, Romans chapter 8. And if we look at verses f uh, 5 to 8, for example, I think this will shed light on the incident in Matthew chapter 16. And here we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 8, what the Apostle Paul says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, 
but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can it be so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God here, here we see Peter that the carnal mind is at enmity against God and so it's it's stating that the carnal mind or the fleshly mind or or or, or an unenlightened mind is God's enemy and so when Jesus said to Peter get behind me Satan or just get behind me adversary he rebuked him for not being enlightened and so we see that the carnal mind is actually God's enemy rather than a supernatural influence. So just to reiterate that, uh, what you're saying is that the, the struggle of all men, good and bad, and the, the, the more determined to do good, the greater the struggle is within our own self, our own natural tendencies, uh, trying to uh, allow for God's ways to win in our lives so the, the strug, struggle is, is raging within trying to uh, always battle the will of serving ourselves instead of serving our Creator. That's, that's exactly the case, Peter. And the perfect example that the Scriptures give us to follow is the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that in Hebrews chapter 4, and I believe it's around 17, verse 17, it says that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus himself would have had this struggle. Now, a perfect passage, I think, for us to go to now is in John chapter 16 and verse 33. Now, here it says, uh, this is what Jesus says, okay. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye may, ha may have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Or as some translations say, I have conquered the world. Now, we know Jesus did not conquer the world in, in a militarily uh, manner. He did not have armies and so on and so forth. So the only way that Jesus could state that he would could overcome the world would be in a struggle. A struggle that you just described that is warring within ourselves where we have to combat good and evil within ourselves. So uh, this battle again that, that rages and that we've all experienced Jesus Christ was the only one to struggle with it to finally overcome and defeat the will of the flesh and allowing God's way to completely and for his entire life have the victory. That's right, Peter, and it's very important to note that Jesus never sinned. Mm -hmm. Although he was tempted like we are, he never actually succumbed to sin. Yeah, an incredible victory. Yes, now I think what Jesus meant in John 16:33 is well explained for us by John the Apostle in 1 John. Let's just take a look at 1 John chapter 2 and verses 14 to 17 and, and see if these passages kind of harmonize with what Jesus himself says in John 16. Peter, would you be kind enough to read that for us? Yes, I would. 
I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lusts thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now, Peter, in reading these verses, we notice, we notice some important statements that are made. If we read these verses, the Apostle John here says very clearly, he says, everything in the world is a direct result of three temptations. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everything in the world, any evil that you see in the world today, is of the world. It's not of a supernatural influence that comes from outside the world. And you'll see there, um, of the world and of the Father. Well, to be of the Father means that it originates with the Father. So any righteousness that we do is we learn from God. So the opposite of that is if it's of the world, then its origin is of the world and it's defined as the lust of the flesh and so on and so forth. Once again, demonstrating that the evils in the world come from within man. And as we can see from... Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.